Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. Before they were legends of outlaw country, they were lost souls looking for their sound. Don't miss Mandy Moore in the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Hear how one woman's vision and her tiny living room, far from Nashville's Music Row, became the epicenter of a musical movement. Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in The Boar's Nest. Listen now at audible.com slash the boar's nest. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Pushkin. Just a quick note here. You can listen to all of the music mentioned in this episode on our playlist, which you can find a link to in the show notes. For licensing reasons, each time a song is referenced in this episode, you'll hear this sound effect. All right, enjoy the episode. It's been 10 years since Arcade Fire's exceptional third album, The Suburbs, earned a Grammy for Album of the Year. It's a distinction that helped catapult the quirky indie rock band from Montreal into one of the biggest bands in the world. That's ready to start from The Suburbs. With a string of chart-topping conceptual albums and a live show that's arguably unmatched by any other modern rock band, Arcade Fire's genius can be attributed to their tireless work ethic, a collective musical mastery, and lead singer Wynn Butler's total surrender to an elusive musical spirit. Wynn Butler spoke with Rick Rubin from his home studio in New Orleans, where he lives with his wife and band member, Regine Chasson. Wynn describes the night he and Regine wrote their first songs together, explains why he set out to be the weak link in the band, and why the only place he would ever talk to Bob Dylan is side stage at an arcade fire show. This is Broken Record, liner notes for the digital age. I'm Justin Richmond. Here's Rick Rubin's conversation with Wynn Butler. What's happening, man? Hello, hello. Where are you? Uh, I'm in New Orleans. Oh, nice. How long have you lived there? Uh, five years or something. How's it been? I love it. It's funny, like when COVID started, I started watching like New Orleans films because I like miss New Orleans. <laughs> I miss New Orleans so much. It's like even though I live here, I'm like, like it's uh, it's amazing how uh, much of the city is just in the people. 
Yeah. How did you choose to um, to move there? So Regine, my wife, who's in the band, um, my partner is uh, her family's from Haiti, and she grew up in Montreal. So she's sort of uh, francophone Haitian. And when we were working on the suburbs, we did a road trip from Houston to New Orleans, and we sort of got to we kind of got to near Lafayette, like the kind of like Creole Zydeco country. And we went to these like clubs, these little Zydeco clubs, and it's like all black kids singing in French. And she understood everything from the Haitian side and the Quebec side and was just like like this weird family tree sort of thing. And I grew up in Houston, so it's sort of like, I don't know, we both feel really at home here. For It's like just feels like a, our natural place. Is the Haitian connection stronger even than in Montreal? There's a lot more Haitians in Montreal, like there's more of a community and and culture, but the kind of spiritual, like the old, like you kind of have all this 1800s Haitian culture here that's, that's like kind of like really deep, more the spiritual, spiritual piece of it is really strong here. Beautiful. What's your connection to spirituality or do you have any or have you ever had any? I kind of like my parents, my mom's, my mom's family... So my my grandfather was Alvino Ray, who was a big band leader. He was actually one of two jazz guitarists in New York City, like in the in the twenties. He was like the, one of the first people that played jazz on a guitar. And my grandmother was a singer uh, in the King Sisters. And so my mom kind of grew up in this musical, like very musical family. They were on television, like musical overload. My mom's a harpist, jazz harpist, and and my dad's family is. Is from Maine, like they're like boat, like island people, like Harvard, academic, East Coast sort of people. And my mom, my mom's family's Mormon, but I kind of call them like Martini Mormons, like they were like jazz Mormons, you know. I kind of grew up exposed, like going to Mormon church, but my dad never went, and my dad was like completely agnostic and like kind of like have fun guys sort of vibe, and then. As I kind of got older, I went away to boarding school and I ended up, I, like I studied, my my degrees actually in religious studies because I, I ended up sort of in philosophy. And then I, the more I studied philosophy, the more I realized it all just kind of came back to the Bible anyway. I was like, well, at least I should at least understand what this shit is talking about because like that's what all of Western culture is referencing. I don't know. There, there, it, there, were, there is, I mean, music is a spirit. Like that is what it is. And that's one of the things that brought me to New Orleans. It's like, you really don't feel like a crazy person feeling that way because like it's self-evident. But I, I think it's become, my spirituality has become very churchless and and very kind of like, you know, more, I've, I've studied a lot of different stuff, but um, I probably know more about the Bible than, than, than I should. Do you think it's uh, informed your songwriting? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think it en- enables you to be kind of crazy enough to think of it as a vocation, which even even if you're full of shit, at least it gives you a purpose. <laughs> uh, let's talk about the difference between how a song would come about on the last album versus the first album. On the first album, might it be acoustic guitar, singing, playing, and finding a song? Would it start with lyrics? What What would be your typical process then? most recently versus traditionally? So the, uh, the song Everything Now was, I was actually, I started, I started DJing. We did a record with James Murphy and, and I kind of started actually 
listening to music and clubs and like I remember hearing Dr. Dre in a club for the first time and I was like what the fuck that's what that shit sounds like I had no fucking idea and you're like oh shit like I knew it was great but I didn't know that that's what it sounded like yeah. you know so it's like when you hear what it sounds like and you start to get the production connection between the speaker is the last it's like you're making some shit that hits the speaker and the speaker is actually what's doing the last bit of the work and so I was actually working on a remix. There's a Francis Bay Bay song called Coffee Cola. That's like kind of this beautiful pygmy flute. It's like kind of a beatbox. It's this French uh, African singer. And as I was working on the remix, I started playing all these different chords over this little loop. And I just started singing a melody that was completely unrelated to the song. And it, and it was just its own song. It took me a minute to even realize it was a song because I wasn't thinking, I didn't, I'd never, hadn't really worked on sample-based music before. And it was like, felt like a, like a tool. I don't know, the way that playing the guitar felt for me, like when I was 15, it felt like that. It was like, it was like, oh wait, this is just a tool like any other tool. But it was like the melody and, and and the lyrical point of view and everything was like all there. But then even just to accept that it was a song took like six months. We, we ended up working with uh, Thomas uh, from Daft Punk and we did we did the big session for that record in his studio in Paris, which is like the most amazing studio I've ever been in. It's amazing. And we actually got Francis Bebe's son who plays the same instrument to come to the studio to play with us. And so we didn't actually end up using the sample. We, we And so we're like kind of like thinking about it very cerebrally and just like, oh, like, I don't know. I feel like there's this very PC, like, is this appropriative to use an African? Like, I don't, it's like this NPR think or some shit. <laughs> and then Patrick Bebe walks in the room with his flute and we play in the song and he's like almost like weeping and just like starts playing the song with us. And, and I was like, no, this is fucking what's up, you know? And, and like, just, I don't know. So that was like a really beautiful, really long process where it took almost like a year to even realize it was a song or something. Amazing. Was the last album the first album that that experience happened? Totally. I mean, that was, the, that was the first time I would have ever been, I mean, since I was much younger, where I would have even really been, um, I don't know, even the idea of remixing something or, or like kind of changing the context of something as a thing that I would have spent time on, I, I wouldn't have been practicing that. That's, I, I feel like I'm just constantly trying to feel like an amateur. It's like you just like, I don't know what it, it's like. The first time I heard Nirvana, my takeaway was like, I don't need to play a guitar solo. Like I like my my lesson was like, fuck a guitar solo. Not that guitar solos aren't great, but I'm just like, there's. It was more just like wanting to feel like, like I never really learned to play the guitar. I've never really gotten any better at any instrument. Like I'm, I've almost like studiously maintained my amateurness, so I can like pick something up, being like, how does this work and so it, it, that becomes sort of part of the process. And I just, everyone in my band is smarter than me and better at every instrument. Like I, I wanted to be in a band with where every, I was the weak link musically or something. I don't know. Like, like, I, like the people that I, when I met Regine, I was like, oh, you're smarter than me about everything. So like you just want to surround yourself with people that are smarter than you. Did you guys start in a relationship or did you start in the band and be come together? How, what was the timing of it? It was the same. I went to Sarah Lawrence college, which is like super like post art school. 
like outside of New York City. It was like 70, 30 female to male. Jordan Peele was actually in my class. And I got there and I was just like, I just spent all my time making four track recordings and like not going to class. And I was just like, this is stupid. So I, I basically dropped out and and started a band with my high school friend and then sort of ended up moving to Montreal. Um, I actually never even thought about Canada. <laughs> I wasn't like, I'm going to move to Canada one day or what you like. It wasn't really, I didn't know shit about Montreal. I didn't even really know that it was French really like really like I knew, but I didn't like, know. no, because you're American. So of course, how would you know? We don't learn. We don't learn that. <laughs> I, I grew up in Texas. I, I took Texas history. Like I can tell you about the fucking battle of San Jacinto, but like, I don't know anything about European history. Like, you know, so yeah. So I, I, I was just like this idiot American in like moving to Canada in the winter, just like, fuck, it's fucking cold here. Like what's going on? And I was just, I would, I would go to the uh, music, to McGill, to the music school and just hang out outside the drummer rooms, trying to find a drummer, just listen to people practice drums for like hours. And I was in the cafeteria and Regine was actually studying jazz at, at McGill. She's like, who the fuck is this six foot five guy in a cowboy hat? Like he definitely doesn't go to school here. And I, I saw her and I went up to her and I was describing to her like the kind of music I wanted to make. And, and she, I think she was suspicious of like, you know, she was like, ah, I mean, I said all things that she would have been in. I probably said like, like it would have been like Neil Young, the Pixies, classical music, fucking, you know, Radiohead. Like it would have been like a weird hodgepodge of whatever I was into. She was like, well, I might know someone who plays drums. She gave me her number and uh, she never called me back or anything. And then I happened to be at an art opening at the art school and she was singing like, like she, she had like a jazz trio that she was singing for like a vernissage, like for a, a art opening. And I saw her singing. I was like, I went up to her afterwards. And I was like, we have to play music together. Like, I'm going to call you again. And she came over to my apartment and I played her a bunch of songs and she was like, Oh shit, this guy is not full of shit. Like, you know, I, I, I don't even remember what I played her, but we ended up writing a couple songs like that night. And it was pretty much like, that was it. You know, we were kind of, I mean, it took a long time to put it all together, but from there it was just like, we were just sort of in it, you know, and now it's 2020. <laughs> and you have a kid. We have a kid and it's a global pandemic. <laughs> and you moved to, and you moved back to the States. Good old Man, USA. if you told me I would move back to the South, I was like, get me the fuck out of here. I'm going as far as I can. Like, I'm going to fucking Montreal, like, fuck, fuck Texas. But And now, so ironically, we're planning on going back to Texas to make the next record um, during the election. So that'll be fun. We'll be back after a quick break. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. Snag a job is where America goes to hire 
with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. How did the biggest names in outlaw country start a musical revolution? Through one woman's vision from one tiny living room. Don't miss Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest. Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Brewer helped shape the sound and soul of country music as we know it today, despite never picking up an instrument herself. Lovingly dubbed The Boar's Nest, Sue's place was an intimate staging ground where a new breed of singer-songwriters, wounded souls, wayward upstarts, would spur each other on to tap into something bigger, realer. Starring Mandy Moore and featuring Eben Moss Bacharach as Shel Silverstein and TJ Osborne as Johnny Cash, alongside a full ensemble cast, Audible invites you to enter the Boar's Nest and experience the rise of a musical revolution. One woman, one time, one place. The Boar's Nest. Sue Brewer and the birth of Outlaw Country Music. Listen now at audible.com slash The Boar's Nest. We're back with Rick Rubin and Wynn Butler. Who were the other big uh, inspirations for you? Actually, I found, a, I found recently a flyer that we put up in Montreal when we were looking for musicians. We were kind of looking for, um, we had the band, but we were looking for orchestral musicians. We were looking for like, I don't know, like a violinist or a, or someone who played woodwinds, or we just wanted some other color in the band. And it was like, we listed our, it was like this funny flyer that Regina and I made. And I'm trying to remember what was on there, but it was like the Pixies, Debussy, Neil Young, Motown, and Dylan. That, that, like, those, that was, was on the list. Like looking for orchestral musicians with like those influences, you know? And I'm, I'm like, it's pretty, like, and New Order. And New Order, that was the other band. And I, when I look at our shit, I'm like, pretty on point. Like, that's pretty much, that's sort of like the, it's a big, it's actually a really big sandbox to play in with, like, if you stretch the edges of those. And then the other piece is really, like, Caribbean music and and Haitian music and, and like, and that sort of pull of Regine's background. And then in there, it's like, it's almost too much. I'm just like, oh, too much uh, real estate in here. What would be the uh, electronic music that has come in since that gets added? I mean, I would say that, you know, uh, for me, like Radiohead and Bjork, Bjork is like, to me, like Bowie incarnate, like, you know, talk about not giving a fuck and just being like sticking to your guns and and shit. Like, I, I feel like Bjork slaughters, you know, she's so fucking tough and hardcore. I mean, I guess like, 
Kid A and Homogenic and like those records would have been, those would have been deep in there. I mean, I feel like Kraftwerk is probably the most, there is no modern music without Kraftwerk. That's like the, if you triangulate all EDM and hip hop and every, like Kraftwerk's the fucking, and who would think this weird German minimalist electronic group is like at, but they're at the crossroad of all of it, you know? If they got like a tenth of a penny on all that shit, they're like, they should, you know, there should be buildings in Berlin with the Kraftwerk logo on them. But. And the fact that it's as funky as it is, considering how coldly programmed it is, it's really It makes remarkable. no fucking sense. I don't, I still don't quite understand it. But I mean, it's like the funkiness is in the space because it's like, I actually realized that with Neil, some of Neil's shit, like the swing, even he always has the same beat. But if it's it's more of a soul, it's actually a slowed down. It's like you're playing soul music, but really stoned. Like it's actually, it there is actually like a kind of funky swing to the shit that he does. It's not just a straight thing. There's a little bit of a lilt to it. Like the the thing in New Orleans, which is so amazing, is that all the there's all the second line music, which is like people like normally today, if it wasn't COVID, I would hear there'd be a band in the street. And people just go to the neighborhood and drink and, and you follow the band around and you either play kick drum, snare, or you play you play kick drum with a with a with a hi-hat symbol with a screwdriver that's like one instrument and then or you play the snare or you play and so if you if you're a kit drummer from New Orleans, you've started monophonically just playing the kick or just playing the snare. And so the do and but everything's so spread out physically that in order to play in the pocket the the pocket is really slow and behind everything's really behind because because the physical distance there's latency between the tuba and the kick drum and whatever so the pocket is like this like super behind like you're like how the fuck could this possibly groove and it like it's the exact point where it grooves and then if you learn to play the kit after you're coming from a monophonic kick drum and then you're putting it together and that's why all those New Orleans, like all the LA studio dudes, like those New Orleans dudes are just like, because they played the fucking kick drum for like five years before they learned how to play the kit. And then you put it together. And so you're thinking about it as these different instruments as opposed to one instrument. And like, Amazing. and then you hear people, some of these old dudes play at the preservation hall. And I'm like watching this dude, he's like 90 years old, loading out his own kit at the end of the night. And I'm watching him play, I'm like, who the fuck is that guy? And it's like, oh, he played on every Ray Charles record. Like, <laughs> like, it, just like the fucking most, so, it's like, I'm almost like crying just watching him play this traditional song. And it's like, oh, that's why. Like, that's, that's what's up. Isn't, isn't it remarkable that you can hear, you don't have to know any backstory and you hear it and you know, oh, this is different than everything else. And it's yeah, something I, as I've heard, ordinary I've heard that music a million drum. times, but I'm like, but that dude, who the fuck yeah. is that dude? It's like, oh, he's one of the best drummers in the world who ever lived that no one's ever heard of. Who just, yeah. you know. I can remember I was listening to a, a station of, um, I, I know very little about classical music. I like classical music and I listen to it a lot, but I know very little about it. And I was listening and, and a, piece, a piece came on that just felt better not written better, not even necessarily performed better, but there was something about it. It's like, oh, this is different than everything that's played all day. And then I find out who does the arrangement and it turns out to be this guy, Klaus Augerman. And I ask some friends of mine who know about this stuff. He's like, oh, of course, Klaus Augerman. Of course, like, of course. 
He's the master. He's the guy who taught everybody. So it's like you can hear it. It's um, it's innate in in the, in the DNA of it that um, that energy. Yeah, but most of us get, just feel it. So it's like you feel sad and you don't know why, or you like you just feel like it just it just gets it out of you. Regine Regine is like, I mean, she grew up. None of her family is musical, but she. She's just a savant who like taught herself to play Mozart when she was five in the basement on a weird or like she's just like one of these can play any in- instrument. She she started playing drums like two weeks before we started recording Funeral and she plays drums on half that record. Like she'd never played a drum kit. And she's like, I can play a drum kit. Give me the drums. Um, but she studied composition. She was at McGill, studied classical music. But she has this like kind of she'll hear pieces and it's like the arrange the performance of the orchestra and she's like fuck it's like nails on a chalkboard because she knows like all the minutiae of like the feeling it's not just the notes on a page it's like it's like the conducting and how it's played and like all that shit is like where the soul of it is but i'm just sort of like fantasia is cool <laughs> like i'm just like <laughs> i really like fantasia you know like like any any shows that you can remember throughout your life that really uh impressed or inspired you live I didn't really go to any show. I, it, when I was a kid, I was in the suburbs of Houston. If you can't drive, you can't do shit in Houston. Like, like until you can drive, it's like you're a prisoner. And shows would come through town, and I would like read them out in the paper. I'm like, man, I wish I could figure out how to get to that. And I just I couldn't figure it out. And then I went to boarding school, and that was like not shows you know it was like i played in a cover band and there were bands on campus and shit but it wasn't like i was going to shows so for me like when i moved to montreal that was really my first like real punk rock music scene and there's a band in montreal called wolf parade and we played with them the first time they ever played it was their first show they just moved from vancouver and they were on the bill and i was in the bathroom and i was just like hearing it through the wall and i was like oh what the fuck is that? And that was like the first band I heard there where I was like, we got to get our shit together. And so like there was a band called The Unicorns. There was a band called The Hidden Cameras. That's like a queer, like 15 piece queer kind of folk band. And they would only play in porn theaters. And it was like kind of sounded like almost like Christian religious music, but like all about golden showers. And like, man, I'll put... I'll put that band up against 90% of the shit I've seen on planet. Earth. Like you just, you're like, you're assaulted by how mediocre your shit is. Like, cause they were just like, ah, just like going so fucking hard. There was a lot of like really people really doing it and being on the ground. I don't know. I feel like some of that's lost. I don't even know how you would ever do anything if you're not constantly ashamed at how whack your shit is. You just get, you feed off the energy of how good other people are. You got to. I mean, you, I mean, you got to, like, I've, I've met so many of my heroes in my life and I've never met Bob Dylan, but I was like, I would never want to meet Bob Dylan ever unless he was side stage of our show. And I'd be like, nice to meet you, Mr. Dylan. But like, I have no fucking interest in like just cold meeting Bob Dylan. Like, I want to be like, oh, I play in a band. Like, like I'm good. You know, like on, on Neon Bible on our second record, uh, I was obsessed. Do you ever get to meet Bob Johnson before he passed? He was yeah. the the producer uh, who did what all the Dylan shit, Johnny Cash, Live at Folsom, okay. Willie Nelson, Leonard Cohen. To me, Bob Johnson, like if you look at his discography, 
that's like no one fucks with Bob John. Like to me, I'm like, that's the holy grail. It's incredible. And so he came out to Montreal. We were working on the record and he was like Willie Nelson, but who didn't take the drugs as well. He was out of his fucking mind, like completely out of it. But we were working on a song called My Body's a Cage. And he sort of like sits up and he's like, my body's a cage. And like, he'd like loved the song, My Body's a Cage. And like, was really just like, yes, this, that is a holy thing that you're working on. And that, and then he was sort of out of it, you know, but he was like, I'm, like, I'm shocked that the song that gets mentioned is that song, because at the end of this interview, I was going to say my favorite song of yours is my body is a cage. And would it be okay for us to listen to it and talk about it? Because I love that song. Um, do you mind if we listen to it? Of course, Yeah, let's do it. If you would have written that song sooner, there is no question in my mind that Johnny Cash would have sung that song and it would have been mind-blowing. Yeah. There's definitely some room sound on that motherfucker. Yeah. Tell me the story of the song. It's interesting. It's like I sort of transported. I haven't really listened to it in a while, but um, I don't really know Brandon Flowers from The Killers, but he's Mormon. We both play in these giant bands. We've like met each other at airports a couple times. And I reached out to him recently just to be like, keep going, man. I really appreciate your your record and keep keep doing it and he was like he was like i remember meeting you on funeral and you had this little keyboard and i remember thinking man this guy's writing music on tour i should really work harder and like i had this little casio casio keyboard on the funeral tour that had a a sampler and the whole tour i brought it with me and i would we were in a we were in a sprinter van i would sit in the back with headphones for like nine hours driving across Texas, like to the next gig. And I would play this fucking thing for two years. And that's the only song I wrote in that entire two year period that that was the only one. And I remember singing it in the shower of like some fucking motel six somewhere in the desert. And then the car broke down somewhere in Arizona. And I was sitting on the curb with the headphones on. And I just figured out how it went. And I was like, Regine, I wrote one. Like I got, I have, I have this, you know, in the, just sitting, like just sweating, like in, it's like evening, I'm sitting on this weird curb. It's like literally the smallest sound. I was playing the littlest fucking thing, this little keyboard. And it sounded like what we just heard in my head, but it was like literally the smallest thing. And then like maybe a year and a half later, we cut it. And so like, we cut it, the backing band when Bob Johnson was there in, in this church we bought outside of Montreal, like an hour outside of Montreal. And then we cut it live on this, I found a, I found this little church. It actually wasn't the church we owned. It was another church that had a pipe organ in it, but it wasn't the right pipe organ sound. And I found, it's like one of the giant, this giant cathedral in Montreal that like you play and there's like an eight second delay, like giant fucking thing. I just, I, I want to, something that feels like the way it sounds when you walk into a church and you really hear it. And we had this engineer who was this like really like indie rock kind of cold dude. And I remember finishing it and it, the echo for like 10 seconds afterwards. And I looked at him and he was crying. He was like crying, like just from the physical, it was so fucking loud in the room, like the bass and everything. It was like the loudest sound I've ever heard. Did you sing it and play it live? No, it's the organ. I, I I sang it live in that other room, and then we overdubbed the organ. And and there's French horn, 
that dun, 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 like there's this kind of um that was recorded in the same church like from like 100 feet away like just horns echoing in this gi- giant cathedral what about the rhythm track the rhythm track is um i think it's regine playing the drums like the whole first half of the track is just organ and and drums and just regine playing doom 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 like kind of like i remember that her reference point was prince maybe i'm just like my mother doom doom Ding, 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 ding. Like there's that sort of rhythm underlying it. And then it just sort of opens up and everything's on 11. And it's just like, bah. I remember kind of taking some shit on that record for it being so bombastic. It's like, so like how pretentious to make something bombastic. And I was like, motherfucker, like this shit's not bombastic enough. Like, it's, like it's, it's fine. I would have never, I would have never noticed the When Doves Cry reference on the drums. But when you say it, it's like, oh yeah, that makes sense. Ding, ding. But but not obviously not the same production. But yeah, but it's it's interesting how a reference point, even a super well known reference point, when you change the context of it, turns into completely new yeah. music. Any memories about the lyrics at all? When I hear myself sing on those, the really the first two records, I was ill. I was like, I had a chronic sinus. I had chronic sinus infections, and I I would basically be sick for four months at a time, my voice was just fucking shredded, you know, like, and I would just scream every note of every song from beginning to end every night. But I was really like not well. And even at the end of funeral, I was still sick. We launched Neon Bible and we were in Sweden or something. We went to play the show and it's like, like nothing, no sound. Like my voice, like I've never had that before. We had to cancel the whole tour like I, I could like not a whisper of sound came out of my voice. And so I feel like my body as a cage was like, just like you're just being suffocated by your life. It was just like, I had like, like my body wasn't my own and I'm doing what I've always dreamed of doing on planet earth. And it's fucking hell. But like, but it's also my wildest dream, you know, but it wasn't like, it's not Later, easy. it got fun. It got once you know, once you have money and you're staying in nice hotels, and it's like a little bit cushier. But like, it, there was no nuance to what we were doing. We were like, it, it was war. Like every show was like, we're at war with the audience. It wasn't like a kumbaya sort of shit. It was like we're trying to fucking kill. Like you're not going to be like, oh, what was that band? Like we were like, we were coming to kill you every night. You know, like I don't care if there's three people. Like we're we're at eleven. You know. And which is, it's great when you're, when you're young and I didn't even drink or anything then. So I can't even imagine how I would have done it if I was like high or some shit. How did you end up solving the infection issue? I got a, a sinus surgery and they kind of opened, I had like one side that wasn't drained. They opened it up. And then afterwards my dad was like, oh yeah, I had that too. And so did your brother. And I was like, fuck dad. Like I've been sick for like three years. Like you could have hit me that it was like a completely like genetic. It's like, yeah, I had that surgery a lot. I was like, have you noticed that I've been ill for forever? <laughs> we'll be back with Win Butler and Rick Rubin. As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to Nerd Wallet. Their expert team of nerds has the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. 
Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Snag a job is where America goes to hire. With the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers... Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On-demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. How did the biggest names in outlaw country start a musical revolution? through one woman's vision from one tiny living room. Don't miss Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Brewer helped shape the sound and soul of country music as we know it today, despite never picking up an instrument herself. Lovingly dubbed The Boar's Nest, Sue's Place was an intimate staging ground where a new breed of singer-songwriters, wounded souls, wayward upstarts, would spur each other on to tap into something bigger, realer. Starring Mandy Moore and featuring Eben Moss Bacharach as Shel Silverstein and TJ Osborne as Johnny Cash alongside a full ensemble cast, Audible invites you to enter The Boar's Nest and experience the rise of a musical revolution. One woman, one time, one place. The Boar's Nest. Sue Brewer and the birth of Outlaw Country Music. Listen now at audible.com slash the Boar's Nest. Here's the rest of Rick Rubin's conversation with Wynn Butler. Are you, are you um, writing and working towards whatever the next project is going to be? Yeah, we were. We, it depends on the record, but at least a year or more pretty much full-time before we start even demoing stuff. We'd been writing for a year, and it, we're doing our first session towards the record when when kind of COVID came down. And so, like, it was, it felt like sort of like being on the on the roller coaster, and it goes up, and, like, you, you're going into it, and it's, like, exactly then. Once your your body's already going, like, there was, there's no stopping it. So I've just been writing... Like, I can't remember a time where I've written more. Just, like, feels like being 18, just, like, sitting in a piano for five days in a row and working on a melody for a verse and shit like that. It's pretty. It's been pretty amazing, actually. Really beautiful time. 
Great. Do you, do you feel like had had the situation been different, you would already be in recording mode based on the year, year previous of writing? We would have been kind of getting towards wrapping up, I think. Of finishing an album. Yeah. So instead we just wrote two or three. Tell me about how the last album was different than all that came before them for you. I mean, it sort of feels like the way we do it, we're kind of a new band every single time. It's like we we take so much time in between that it's like almost like we've forgotten to play our instruments. It's like we're remembering how to be a band. And we we kind of end up building, we really build a studio pretty much every record. And the last record, we had just moved to New Orleans and I spent a lot of time in Haiti and Jamaica. And we used to, our, we used to have a studio in a church and then over the years, like the space has gotten smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And so our, our new studio is like maybe 300 square feet, but with it's like an old shotgun of like a, of an old New Orleans house, like 1800s house. And it's like sort of like a black arc, like Jamaican, like the console in the corner. We had like 15 musicians. Everyone's like sweating their ass off and touching each other and sort of like really physically close. And just everything's within, it's like you're on a boat. So every, all the gear is here and the EQs and everything's just like immediate. So that was the first time, that was the first record we made in that space that was really just like the smallest possible space that. And that was chosen on purpose to, to, to get that feeling. It's just sort of what I was gravitating towards just like immediacy and like, um, I remember visiting, like on the first tour, we went we were, went to the Motown studio in Detroit that's like in the basement and just like how small that space is. And they have those, uh, like on the walls, like we're normally, like all modern studios have like deadening foam and shit everywhere. And I'm always just like, get me the fuck out of here. I hate this space so much. Like I'm just like, how is the spirit supposed to get into a room where all the windows are hermetically sealed? But the Motown studio had these boards, lacquer boards, that were meant to reflect the sound to make it more exciting. So it would bounce off and hit the piano player and hit the drummer. So it would be more more feedback and more slapback and brighter. So the fucking musicians play better. Everything is designed now to be separate, like the most separation possible. And I always responded more to like, I want it to hit me so that I sing better or I sing differently or I play better. Might, might have something to do with the volume, because I think uh, as bands have gotten louder and louder with, you know, bigger amps and louder stuff, it's harder to control that sound in a space. Whereas in the Motown days, people played pretty quietly, even on James Brown records. If you listen, it's like totally. delicate The drummer is barely, barely playing. Yeah. Totally. It's, so it's a different, it's a different animal. And with the, are the songs... On the earlier records, it's clear how the songs would be written in advance and then turn into what we're familiar with on the records. Does it work the same way in the more modern uh, style of production? We've, we always have recorded to tape. Pretty much in the last six months is the first time where I, like, working on a computer, where I'm like, oh, this shit actually sounds just as good to my ear. Like, like it's kind of hit a point where it's not really for sonics anymore. Tape is more for methodology. We're not, we've jam, we've certainly jammed a lot, a lot over the years. I don't know how many things we've written that way, like probably only a couple things, but, but you, you'll end up kind of more for arrangements, like coming up with different ideas and stuff for arrangements. But. So from the, 
what would a what would a song look like when you first bring it into the band? So the song exists, the band has not played it before. Now we're going into the studio. What does that process look like? It's been different every time. You know, it depends on the era. You know, like um, as I've as we've kind of ended up having a studio in our house, it's really hard not to end up just demoing something to the point where it basically sounds like a record. And then it's just like this like kind of torturous process of trying to figure out how it works as a band thing or what it what it is. From my perspective, like the the thing I'm most interested in is the song itself. And you really have no you don't have much say in whether or not you get a song, except for the more time you put in, the better your odds are that you'll be hanging around when some shit shows up. I mean, just you like if you do it more, you're more likely to be there. Like you can't schedule it. Like the, the more apart we are and coming back together, it's like, well, okay, well this month that's when we're going to get the shit. And it doesn't really work that way. Cause it like music shows up whenever the fuck it wants. It doesn't give a shit about your life. It's like my dad's family's from Maine, but actually I have my grandmother's from Hawaii and I've spent time in Hawaii. And when you're in the ocean in Hawaii, the Pacific, doesn't give a shit if you're alive or dead. It doesn't care at all. You're just like the the energy I get from that ocean is like your existence is like inconsequential to me. And I feel like music is the comes from the same spirit as that where it like like it doesn't give a shit about you. But if you're there and you want to if you want to participate in what it's doing, then you're welcome to participate. But it doesn't really if you're alive or dead, it's going to find someone else. If you got other shit going on, it'll be like, okay, see you later. I got someone just got born. I got to go, got to go check them out see what, see what, what they're thinking about, you know? Amazing. Tell me about you, you've, so now you're at a point where you might demo up music on the computer and then you figure out how to turn it into the band or t- tell me, just tell me the, What's the process? Shit, man. It just gets complicated because everyone's so spread out now. My brother lives in Brooklyn, who's in the band. A lot of band members are in Montreal. And then our drummer's in Australia, actually, which is, like, extremely inconvenient. That seemed like a reasonable thing, even, like, six It was like, oh, sure, we all live in different points of the globe. And then this shit happens, and it just seems absurd. You're like, what, the, like, what, are we, what were we thinking the last 10 years? But, you know, I mean, it's like, Ideally, like I would say back in the day when we were, when we were rehe- like we had a loft we lived in, our drums were in the living room, we would have band practice. And so the odds that people are around when the shit happens is higher because everyone's hanging out. So it's like, even if you don't play something, if you're there when it's happening, it's still, you still feel like you don't need to play on it. You can just, you can just be there and, and kind of like be part of the process. So it's harder to orchestrate that happening, I think, with a band. But on the flip side, the band is so fucking great at their instruments. Like everyone's so, so much more technically proficient and, and so such a tight, amazing, I don't know. I mean, I don't, I'm not trying to like toot our horn, but we're like not a shitty live band. And, and, and we've, when we play, like we're not fucking around. Like we're we're, we're like if the Clash is watching us play, we're not going to be embarrassed. Like we're we're like we're like coming. We're we're going for the throat when we play. So it's like over 15 years of doing that. It's like we're so the the range of what we can express is so much better. So 
this time around, it's like we've been in lockdown, have a studio, have every keyboard and drum machine and piano and everything I could ever want and fucking time. So it's like, and and the one piece that's been missing is the time. And now the time is like, it, the time is there. So it's like, in a way, it feels like a more extreme version of what we would have done anyway. But it's, uh, I don't know, I've, it's been it's been cool just to really like stay with it and just like, I don't know. There's like no magic, no magic thing that's going to come and write the song for you. It's just like, it's just you. So it's like, figure it out. Yeah. Are you ever surprised by what comes back as opposed to what you're expecting or what you're looking for? I mean, that's, that is sort of, that is the joy of a band is when it's, it's, it's better than what you thought it was, you know, and it's different and it's like kind of fleshed out. Absolutely. I mean, that's mostly that is what it is, you know, um, in its in its best form. We were so hardcore about never editing everything. Like back in like the first three, four records, we wouldn't touch a fucking thing. Like we wouldn't move one piece of drums. And it was just like, no, that's what it is. Like if we couldn't do it, that's what it is. And so I feel like the the computer makes it it when I hear most modern music, it feels like I'm listening to editing. Like, like it, it's essentially become a art form of editing, which is cool. It is really cool, but it's like it feels like digital, digital quilting or something like that. Doesn't feel like a musical performance. It feels like an editing performance. Like an amazing editing. It's it's the same thing as a big budget film or something. When it's just like it, it's like a magic trick of editing. I was actually sort of realizing this the other day, um, like the kind of heyday of like 50s and 60s and like some of the music that was really recorded in the room, like is VR. It's VR before VR. And if you if you can hear a room, if you close your eyes, you hear the piano player, you hear the drummer, you can hear the room. And so every time you hear that shit, you're in like Richie Valens playing like that's why these mediocre recordings from the 50s of like La Bamba and shit you hear it and you're like motherfucker cuz it's like it's a photograph of a thing so for me that's still the shit that is the great song and the best arrangement and has that to me that's the shit that lives forever cuz it's like it's like it actually is a room i have i have a slightly different take on it S- similar but different um, my feeling is if you hear the room that they're in, it doesn't take into account the room you're in, the listener. Yeah. And I I want the music to come out of the speakers as if the band was in the room that I'm in and experience it as if they're here playing for me in my space. Because otherwise it's two rooms. It's their room plus my room. And it's confusing to me. No, I... <laughs> so that's, that's how I, I see it. I feel you. I mean... What you're describing is like, is, uh, I mean, obviously if you hear fucking dancing queen, that's in the room you're in, like that's in your room. It's not their room. Like, and that's just like, that's that seven, just immaculate guru level shit as well. But there's still like, for me, like when I hear like, um, stand by me or some shit like that, that's the fucking, or like Louis Armstrong or whatever. Like that's the, to me, that's just like. What the fuck are you going to say about like that shit will live for a thousand years. I mean, now too, it's like we're mixing for this shit. We're mixing for iPhone and like club speakers. And like, it's like, it's enough to make you insane. 
How, how aware are you of the perception of the work you make after it comes out? Are you aware at all or, or just you make it and then you move on? Definitely aware. I mean, I've always, most of the bands that I liked when I was a kid had broken up 20 years before I was listening to them. Like I wasn't, like in high school, like Radiohead and Bjork were like, that was, that was it for me. Like in terms of the contemporary, this came out this week, I bought it this week. But most of the shit I listened to, the bands had broken up 20 years before. And so I always had the perspective of like, how do you even know if any of it's any good until 20 years after it comes out? Like how, I've just like read these NME reviews of like the clash and whatever and what they're talking. It's absurd. You read it and you're like, this is absurd. You know, like how could anyone take any of this shit seriously? And so I was, I was always coming at it from that perspective where it's like, I'm almost like, distrustful of a good review where it's like it's like oh shit our shit must not be that good if, if, if these <laughs> there's people- a really funny the, rolling stone put out a collection of everything written about neil young in rolling stone as a book yeah and you read the review of each album and every review is terrible worst you know neil's worst he's lost it doesn't know what he's doing lost and then you get to the yet. and then you get to the decade's finest albums and he's always in the those same albums are always in their top 10 of the best albums of the decade every consistently every single time yeah neil neil doesn't give a fuck if like you don't drop out of crosby stills and nash if you give a fuck like he had a really good thing going like just imagine the balls it takes to be like buffalo oh, springfield too in buffalo springfield like i'm in two of the biggest bands in the world like I'm just going to go in my basement and like fucking play some shit. And like, yeah, Neil is like, like that's, that's the North star. I feel like for people who do what I do, you're just like, that's a cold blooded motherfucker. He doesn't give a shit. What's your favorite Neil album? I mean, I love, um, after the gold rush is probably the one that I've just lived with the most. Like it just like, it's my favorite. That's as well. my favorite. But it's I mean, harvest is like, I mean, what the fuck are you going to say about harvest? Like in terms of the, like the live needle and the damage done, like a live recording, and then the orchestral stuff, like that, like the magic trick of that is 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 amazing. Definitely after the gold rush, the one that that's my like, I'm going to that one. It's it's pretty magical. It's a pretty magical one. That's that's a record I would love to make, and it would be really hard. Like man, have you seen that? I imagine you've seen the BBC Neil Young from right around that time. I've seen a lot of that shit, but I'm trying to remember which... There's a particular film of him playing, and he's playing, like, um, Old Man and uh, Man Needs a Maid, and he's playing them for an audience who's never heard them before, and the records are not out yet. Yeah. And it's just the heaviest, most incredible thing you've ever seen. Yeah, so, I mean, Old Man's one of the... Because we did, we did the um, his charity thing with him a couple years, and hearing him sing that as an old person... And think like he wrote that at twenty two for when he was old, and it sounds more relevant like now than it did then. That's I mean that's that's the trick. Going into the next album, do you have a clear vision of what the album sounds like, or do you have a clear vision of the material? I mean, I know what the songs sound like. I don't know. What do you? What do you? What would you want our record to sound like? I want to be surprised and. Uh, it's always good to be surprised. I like to be surprised. Yeah. I think you'll be surprised. And I want it to be really good. You know, I, I care less about the um, 
the trappings of it and more about it being really good at whatever it is that it is. So I care less about what it is and more about how good of a version of whatever the thing that you decide it to be is. I mean, that's the tough, it's like, there's not, it's hard to, you look at role models and people have done it in the past and it's like, it's, it, you, it's, it's interesting. It's like, you start to like, we, we were fortunate enough to spend a lot of time with Bowie and, and, and he sings on a record and got to like, really, you know, like I've got to like actually pick his brain. And when he died, it really felt like a, a planet died or something like there's like, it, it was like, I did not expect like it kind of took me by surprise. I knew he wasn't totally well, but then like someone like that, who's just like, it's not about like, oh, these, this record is perfect and all these perfect records. It's just like about the, the total commitment, like total and complete commitment to like, to art. Uh, that's what I think about. It's just like, not like, not letting what's hard about it, like keep you from the art, art of it, you know? But I don't know. I, I feel so lucky just to have a fucking band that's a great band, really good people that I love, and and just like being able to fucking, I don't know. I feel I feel like I took so much more for granted before this whole global pandemic. I'm just like I feel so like so much gratitude, but also just like fuck. If I don't get into a studio ASAP, there's gonna be a problem. Yeah. So you're looking you're l- looking forward to the process. I can't wait. Like I just want to fucking sing and feel like an artist and just like feel uninhibited and just like feel it. I just it just feels like there's so much logistics. Like the world it's like there's there's uh like things that used to be you would kind of take for granted are suddenly really complicated. And uh I can't wait to just be in a room making noises and um I feel really like a teenager in that regard where I'm just like, it still feels like really exciting to me. And I don't know, not sucking is, is a motherfucker. And I don't know. I, it's like, <laughs> like I'll let you know when I figure it out. Great. Maybe we, uh, maybe we'll speak again when you're done and we listen to it together and talk about it. Be fun. Yeah. I'll, I'll send you some shit. You tell me what's good. Okay. Happy yeah. to. Cool, man. Yeah. Thanks. That was, that was fun. Nice to, nice to talk about music. Thanks to Wim Butler for breaking down his writing and recording process. We hope he's crammed into a tiny studio space with his band playing new music soon. You can hear all of our favorite Arcade Fire songs on our playlist at brokenrecordpodcast.com. And be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash brokenrecordpodcast. There you can find extended cuts of our new and old episodes. Broken Record is produced with help from Leah Rose, Jason Gambrell, Martin Gonzalez, Eric Sandler, and is executive produced by Mia LaBelle. Broken Record is a production of Pushkin Industries. And if you like Broken Record, please remember to share, rate, and review our show on your podcast app. Our theme music's by Kenny Beats. I'm Justin Richmond. Peace. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side-by-side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? 
a room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect with more than 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 a month, less than a single private lesson. I mean, why do we do Broken Record? Not just because we love hearing from great musicians. We do it because we think that there is something beautiful about the appreciation of music. Don't you think we need more of that in our lives these days? That's the mission of Musora, to inspire, educate, and connect musicians. Enjoy unlimited personal support, weekly live streams, student lesson plans. It's like having a personal music teacher, only much, much better. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there.